All right, y'all. I do want to ask you to pray. We have a uh, child coming on Tuesday. We actually will go into the, I guess there's this new, there's new pregame festivities around childbirthing that I have not heard of since it's been nine years. But evidently on an induction, you go in the day before pregame type stuff. So that will happen tomorrow. And then Lord willing, the child will come on Tuesday, but we have strep throat in our family. We've had, in the past, we've had to take two children uh, to uh, children's hospitals for a week because of uh, viral stuff that has come to our kids, the child that was born, because of stuff in our family. And so I would ask you to pray that uh, Knox would be able to swallow his pills, that the uh, this strep throat would be uh, under control before this child comes into our family. I'd ask you to do that, please. All right. You ready for Galatians? I'm ready for Galatians. Turn to Galatians chapter 1. Steve Brown, who's a seminary professor, he's a very popular radio Bible teacher. In his latest book, A Scandalous Freedom, tells of a convent school, all right? He says, where, there's a ba- where there was a basket of apples sitting on the dining room table. And by the basket of apples was this note, and it said, take only one, God is watching. Well, then someone put another basket of stuff at the other end of the dining room table, and this is a basket full of chocolate chip cookies. And in the writing, in child scratch writing, this note said, take all the cookies you want, God is watching the apples. <laughs> Welcome to Galatians, brothers and sisters. Welcome to the story of two churches. Welcome to the story of two gods. Welcome to the story of two gospels. Welcome to the story of two visions of doing church. Welcome to Galatians. You have one church, one God, one gospel, one saving faith that's characterized by Take one apple, God is watching you. And then you have another vision for church and another gospel message and another view of God and another view of saving faith that says, eat all the cookies you want. Take all the cookies you want because God baked them fresh just for you. Enjoy them. Enjoy them. Now, one of the great treasures about Galatians is this. There's many of them, but there's several. And there's one that's just, I have found to be of great comfort. And that is that Galatians is a cosmic counselor. Do you know what that means? Galatians knows you better than you know yourself. Galatians is the most gifted, talented, all-wise, searching, enlightening, penetrating counselor that gets to the roots of, and gets to the foundations of your very heart and gently and compassionately reveals it to you to heal you. And one of the things, in a, in a group this large, I know there are many of you that are bearing the oppressive weight of something. Guaranteed. And I want to tell you what I think it is from Galatians, and you'll see it unpacking. It's this. Even when you approach the all-you-can-eat cookie buffet, you only take one cookie. 
And then you feel guilty about it for the rest of the day. Ah, Galatians is after you. It's after you. So prepare yourself. Prepare yourself for a God. Prepare yourself for a gospel. Prepare yourself for a vision of church. Prepare yourself for real Christianity. Please stand for the hearing of God's word. Galatians chapter 1. We're going to look at 11 through 24, okay? For I would have you know, brothers, that the gospel that was preached by me is not man's gospel. For I did not receive it from any man, nor was I taught it. But I received it through a revelation of Jesus Christ. For you have heard of my former life in Judaism, how I persecuted the church of God violently and tried to destroy it. That's actually a Greek word for leveling a city. So that's how serious he was. And I was advancing in Judaism beyond my own age, Many of my own age and among my people, so extremely zealous was I for the traditions of my fathers. But when he who had set me apart before I was born and who called me by his grace was pleased to reveal his son to me in order that I might preach him among the Gentiles, I did not immediately consult with anyone. Well, that's, that's a moxie there. Nor did I go up to Jerusalem to those who were the apostles before me, but I went into Arabia and returned again to Damascus. Then after three years, I went up to Jerusalem to visit Cephas and remained with him 15 days. But I saw none of the other apostles except James, the Lord's brother. In what I'm writing to you before God, I do not lie. I mean, this is vow language. This is like testimony in court language. It's pretty, pretty intense. Then I went into the regions of Syria and Sicilia. And I was still unknown in person to the churches of Judea that are in Christ. They only were hearing it said, he who used to persecute us is now preaching the faith he once tried to destroy, and they glorified God because of me. The word of the Lord. Please be seated. I still have the crud, so I will still need a drink, and Shane, you be ready just in case something happens with my voice. Lord, we thank you that We thank you that you love us. And we know that that the feeling and the experience of that many times feels distant and vexed and cloudy. But it's true. And so, oh Lord, would those here that are finding themselves surrounded with no way out. May you rescue them to the praise of your glory and grace. And Lord, for all of us, wherever we are, may you reach us with the wonders of your grace. And we ask this in Christ's name. Amen. All right, we are two sermons into Galatians. This is number three. I feel like I need to give you a, a big picture snapshot of the whole book so you kind of know where we're going and you kind of get your bearings so that as we continue to dive deeply into the book, you don't get lost in the trees, okay? So here it is. Here's a quick snapshot. Galatians divides nicely into three parts. And each part 
roughly is two chapters. It's very, very nice. It's good stuff for propositional reformed people like us. Right? We like three-point outlines. We like three-point stuff. Part one is Paul's biography. Part two is Paul's gospel. Part three is Paul's freedom. Paul's biography, which is where we are now, is chapters one and two. And what's happening here is Paul's defending his apostleship. Remember, God has wed his message with his original messengers. And so he married them. So if you mess with one, you mess with the other. And that's what Paul knows is at stake. It's not just his apostleship that he's wanting to defend so adamantly and so personally and so powerfully. He knows that his apostleship is the foundation from which his message is being attacked. Okay? That's where we're at. That's chapters 1 and 2. Now, there's a follow-up discipleship team that has come in from Jerusalem, the mother church, the megachurch, to do some follow-up to the churches he planted in Galatia. And they're attacking his apostleship. They're saying stuff like, man, he's just a second-rate apostle with a second-hand gospel. All right? That's why there's a bio in chapters 1 and 2. Well, then chapter 3 and 4, we start moving in, really at the end of chapter 2, start moving into what's Paul's gospel? What's this message? What's this message from above? What is it? And this is the shining, what the Puritans would say, light shining on the page kind of stuff that penetrates deeply into your heart kind of stuff. This is the all-you-can-eat cookie buffet. This is the stuff that's too good to be true. This is the stuff that you wonder if it's true. And it's infinitely glorious. This is the stuff that parts the Red Sea. This is the stuff that will penetrate anything and anywhere to reach you. This is God coming down stuff. Okay? Now, part three is Paul's freedom. And what's happening with Paul's freedom, we get to chapters four and five, or five and six. We get to chapters five and six, and we start seeing... What does it look like to really believe the gospel? If we really do believe the gospel, this is what it looks like. And there's, there's power in it, and there's freedom in it, and there's real gutsy obedience in it. It's real living that's taking place in 5 and 6. In other words, when you get the gospel, it really makes you go. And it's the only thing that makes you go. And so Paul is building that point of what real life change and obedience looks like is not the version and the vision that's going to come from the follow-up team. But it's going to be a version and a vision that flows powerfully from the gospel of chapters 3, 2, no, 3 and 4. Yeah. Okay? Got it? You got that picture now? You all set? You, I don't know if it's right wing or right brain or left brain. You, you folks happy? Because I really want to make you happy. You know, and then you artsy people, your, your stuff's coming. Hold on. Okay? Now, you got it in your head. Where does the passage we're looking at fit in bio, gospel, and freedom? Bio, right? That's where we're looking. We're in the bio section, correct? Now, you got to ask yourself, what's Paul doing with his biography here? What's he seeking to accomplish? What permanent mark is he wanting to leave on you with this bio? You with me? 
Because good night, I mean, why is it here? What's its function? What's its purpose? What's the point? What's supposed to hit you? Because you and I know, you've listened here long enough, you've been in this church even just a little bit, you know we actually believe the scriptures do something to you, that the scriptures are living and active, that we've got an uncaged lion up here. So what is this bio doing? Where is it going? It has to go somewhere. Well, this is what we know so far. Remember, we know that a follow-up team from Jerusalem has visited all the churches in Galatia that Paul planted. This is modern-day Turkey. And this follow-up team envisions a different way of doing church, envisions a different kind of view of God, a different kind of gospel message, a different kind of saving faith than Paul's. And so what we got here, if you were in our church planning circles, if you were in uh, pastoral circles that we, we sit around, we talk about church and we get equipped in doing church and we talk about struggles in church and we get trained in doing more church, we would say stuff like this. Paul and the follow-up team have a completely different philosophy of ministry. This is church split stuff, brothers and sisters. The churches in Galatia are hanging on a church split because the follow-up team and Paul have completely different views of ministry. They don't read the Bible the same. They don't see God the same. They don't see the gospel message being the same. They don't have a heart hope being the same. When they are preaching and teaching and they're training and equipping others, they don't have the same thing in view. When they talk about biblical community and they talk about those that are outside the church and they begin to look at how you have redemptive relationships, they have a different meaning on what that looks like and how that comes about. Paul and the Jerusalem team see the world completely different. So whose vision is the right one? Whose vision is the God of the Bible's vision? Whose vision is real Christianity? That's what Paul's doing with his bio. That's what he's after. He's after real Christianity. And the counterfeit or the revisionist version in Galatia. Okay? So Paul is out to prove to the people in the church he loves whose vision is real Christianity. His or the follow-up team. Now, I want you to notice something, and this is very, very important. I just noticed it this week. I mean, I never even knew it till this week. Paul is not addressing the follow-up team in Galatia. Wow. I don't know. Does that not shock you? Okay, I'm a geek. It shocks me. I mean, I'm thinking he's going after them. No, he loves his people there. He's not writing the letter to the leaders because he's lost his patience with the leaders. He's done with them. He kind of follows what Jesus did. When Jesus would talk to people, when he dealt with the religious leaders, it was boom. And the people, it was come here, people. 
And Paul, he comes to these follow-up people and he just goes, boom! The people that he loves and he planned the church with, the people that he cares deeply for, come here, come back. Okay? All right. So what's at stake here is not Paul's pride, as if his significance and his worth is tied up with whether they like him or not or agree with him. What's at stake here is real Christianity. Now, many of you know that a year, over a year ago, a little over a year ago, is it, Tim, the wedding? Yes, a little over a year ago, uh, October, Nancy and I went to officiate Carrie Ann Kayworth, now Tilson, married to Brian, wedding. Wonderful time, and I mentioned that to you, that one of the highlights of being there was having the Redeemer Waco family worship together with the Redeemer New York family. Oh, it was a, it was a wonderful time. The pastor of that church, his name is Tim Keller, and he's written several best-selling books. Many of you have read him. That church ministers to over 6,000 people every Sunday. They planted over 100 churches all over the world and countless churches around the United States. It's a significant, significant work of the Lord. Now, he says this, and it was very interesting. He says that New York City... And the church redeemer is made up of 20-somethings and 30-somethings that have fled middle America. And he says they fled middle America fleeing churches and homes that have the vision and the version of Christianity that the follow-up team in Galatia has. He goes on to say what's happening is these folks are fleeing middle America, rejecting and fleeing a Christianity that's not real Christianity. And then, quote, he says, and then they become inoculated to real Christianity. So, brothers and sisters, what's at stake in Galatians is this. Your family... Will your children, those of you that aren't even married, but Lord willing, if it's the Lord's plan, you will. And if it's the Lord's plan that you have children, and then those of you that have young children, and they're sitting in the nursery right now, and then those of you that have older children, and now younger children, will your children grow up in a home that's full of real Christianity or grow up in a home full of the follow-up team's version of it? Will they flee your home and flee the church thinking that they're fleeing real Christianity but it's not and then become inoculated against real Christianity? Well, what's at stake for Redeemer? This church, you know what's at stake for us? The vision of this church, the stuff we're talking about tonight, the stuff that Ray Biles has been talking about. But what I want to say about it is the vision in real time, the vision with the boots on the ground, not our words and not our proposition statements, which we have, and not vision documents, which I'm writing, or a philosophy of ministry document. I'm talking about in real time what's the boots on the ground vision of Redeemer Presbyterian Church. 
What's the real church culture? The real community and relationships. The real ethos of the leadership and ministry teams and the regular attenders and the way that we do ministry and see ministry. What is it? Will it be real Christianity or will it be the follow-up team's version of it? That's what's at stake in this passage. All right. So you ready? The bio is meant to leave a permanent mark on you, and the bio is meant to mark you with real Christianity. So let's figure out what the bio is, shall we? All right. Some parts of Paul's bio is purely evidential. In other words, it's clear that he's just trying to defend and articulate his apostleship and his message. It's very clear. And he's using evidence to bolster that. It's real clear. Like at verse 12. Look at verse 12. Look at this. For I did not receive it from any man, nor was I taught it, but I received it through a revelation of Jesus Christ. You know what Paul's saying? He's basically saying, look, nobody witnessed to me. I never got a track. I never went to a crusade. I never heard the power team. Never turned on Christian radio. Never had a good neighbor. Nobody witnessed to me. Not only that, nobody discipled me. I wasn't taught. I never had Sunday school. I never had the Redeemer Institute. I never had Titus II. I never went through a discipleship training program. I never was in a community group. I was never discipled. Look at verse 16, 17. If I can find it. I was pleased to reveal a son to me in order that I might preach the gospel among the Gentiles. I did not immediately consult with anyone. Nor did I go up to Jerusalem to those who were apostles before me. But I went away to Arabia and returned again to Damascus. In other words, after I became a Christian, I didn't go to Jerusalem to get the apostolic stamp of approval. Instead, I went to this region that you would call Arabia, but Israelites know as the region of Mount Sinai. Some scholars, this is very appealing to me. I don't know if it's correct. But some scholars actually believe that what Paul did in the region of Sinai was that he was taught by God himself, just like the greatest prophet who ever lived in the Old Testament, Moses. Many scholars think that. But regardless of whether you think that or not, that'll preach. But also the point is, he didn't go to Jerusalem to get approval from the other apostles that he's an apostle. That's the point. All right? He's not a second-class apostle is what he's saying. Now go to verses 18 through 20. You ready? Then after three years, he went up to Jerusalem to visit Cephas and remained within 15 days. But I saw none of the other apostles except James, the Lord's brother. I'm do not lie. Then I went to the regions of Syria and Sicilia, and I was still unknown to all the churches in the outer Jerusalem presbytery, is basically what he's saying. See, what's happening here, he's saying that three years after my conversion and my call to apostleship, I finally went to Jerusalem. Three years after my apostolic call, 
I go to Jerusalem. And then when I go to Jerusalem, I only see two of the 12 disciples, original apostles. And then I only stayed there for 15 days. So his point here, it's hardly an apostolic confirmation council when he went to Jerusalem. And not only that, there's a four-year apostolic training course. And I was only there 15 days. His point is the same. No apostle has confirmed me. I've received no training to be an apostle. And then in verses 21 through 24, where he talks about going to these other regions, what he's saying there, he's saying, look, after Jerusalem, I have been preaching the gospel as an apostle for many, many years. And his point is this. Galatians, before I got to Galatians, I have been a practicing apostle for at least four years. Okay? So the evidence part of Paul's bio is driving home one point. His apostleship and his gospel came from no man. That's good stuff. And that's stuff we need to hear. But there's another part of Paul's bio that is the point of real Christianity. It's not the evidential. It's the supernatural. In other words, this point of his bio, he gets to something that God can only do. You ready? Look in verse 13 and 14. This is absolutely incredible. 13, he says, For you know you've heard of my former life in Judaism, how I persecuted the church of God violently and tried to destroy it. I was advancing in Judaism beyond many of my own age. In other words, Paul's a competitive dude. He wants to be in the top of his class. He doesn't want just to be an average Israelite. He wants to be the best. He's not looking for mediocrity. This dude, he wants to be the best. If he was an athlete, he wants to carry the team. If he was a musician... He wants everyone to weep when he, play, when he plays. If he was in academics, he's top of his class. If he was into relationships, he'd be everybody's best friend. This guy is after it. Notice what happens. 14, I was advancing in Judaism beyond many of my own age among my people. So extremely zealous was I for the traditions of my father. Don't miss what he's doing here. Do you see what he's doing? He is drawing a parallel between his former life and the follow-up team. They both were passionate for purity standards. They both were passionate for the law of Moses. In other words, they both were passionate about spiritual achievement, spiritual performance, and spiritual success. Extremely passionate about that. And then watch what he does next. What only God can do. If you look at that part where it says, but when he, 15, who had set me apart before I was born 
and who called me by his grace was pleased to reveal his son to me. All right, you video people. Paul is on his way to Damascus. He's zealous to prove his significance. How's he going to prove his significance? He's going to be the best at his spiritual performance. Not only that, he's going to abuse anyone he considers to be inferior to him. Because in abusing those that are inferior, it bolsters his significance and salvation. So he's going to Jerusalem, he's going to Damascus, and he's going to find him. He's going to keep proving himself and his significance and spiritual standards. He's going to prove himself in light of persecuting those who are spiritually inferior to him. He's on the road. It's noon. The sun's at its highest and brightest point. Don't you love how the scriptures pay attention to detail? It's noon, Acts tells us. The sun's at the highest, brightest point. And then a light flashes all around him. It says light shone all around him. And it was a light that was brighter than the noonday sun. How do you do that? It was a light that was otherworldly. It was a light that came from another world. It was a light from heaven. It was a light from above. And the resurrected Jesus stands before him in that light. Don't miss it. Look at verse 12. I received it, what, the gospel, through a revelation of Jesus Christ. Drop down to verse 16. God was pleased to reveal his son to me. Here's Paul's point. Here's why the bio. He's basically begging the Galatians, and he's begging those of us that are going to read this letter for generation, generations. He's basically saying, what reaches a heart that's so zealous for self-salvation what alone can reach a heart that is addicted to building its, its whole significance and salvation around its spiritual performance? Advancing, advancing, achieving, and attaining, and earning, and working. What? What reaches that kind of heart? What reaches a heart that's so full of superiority that it abuses others it considers inferior? Because in that noonday sun, his soldiers that are going with him, they're sweating. But you know what he's doing? Man, he's visualizing. He's visualizing his mind going house to house. Okay, where were the attacks come from? Where are the danger parts? Where were people try to hide? That's what he's doing on his way to Damascus. When the resurrected Jesus appears to him. He's successful. He's the equivalent in the New Testament of the Old Testament Nebuchadnezzar. What reaches an enemy of the church? I mean, he tells you he sought to destroy the church. He, he, he pictured and used the words that the Greeks, which were known for their warfare, they were the most skilled soldiers. Everyone, including the Romans, built their military based on the Greeks. And he used a specific Greek word. I seek to go to the church and level it to the ground. I don't want, any, I don't want one brick of Christianity left on the face of the earth. What can reach a heart like that? 
The answer is only one thing can. And that's the point of the bio. There's something only God can do. Only a God of grace can do it. Look at verse 15. We find our answer. But when he who had set me apart before I was born and who called me by his grace, there it is. Because real Christianity cannot be earned. It cannot be merited. It cannot be attained. It cannot be worked for. It cannot be performed. It cannot be successed. That's a new one for you. It can't be advanced, achieved. Real Christianity can only be received by grace from beginning to end. Now notice how far back he goes with his beginning before I was born. So when Paul saw Jesus, he saw he didn't have to do great things anymore. He didn't have to be great. He didn't have to be perfect. He didn't have to perform and attain and be successful. When Paul saw Jesus, he saw that Jesus was great. Jesus performed. Jesus attained. Jesus worked. When Paul saw the resurrected Jesus and that light shining all around him, he saw he didn't have to do anything for his salvation and his significance. Anything to make life meaningful. Anything to feed the raging thirst in his soul to have meaning and to matter and for significance and cosmic security. Jesus did his salvation and his significance. Jesus did it all. When Paul saw Jesus, he saw that he, when he saw Jesus, he saw that the Son of God had to die for him. He definitely saw that, didn't he? I mean, how do you do what he did and still go on? Once your, once your stuff is really revealed for what it is, I mean, imagine again, this is kind of like David. Once you get your stuff revealed and seen for the way it is, how in the world do you go on when you've done those kind of things? So he had, when he saw Jesus, he had to see Jesus had to die for me. And that's powerful and that's personal, but that's not the end of it. He saw that Jesus was glad to die for me. And that's what got him. When Paul saw Jesus, he saw a Savior. He saw a life. He saw a death. He saw a resurrection for him. For him. For him. And it changed his life. The grace of Jesus Christ came to Paul. Real Christianity came to Paul. She was young. She was married. She had three children. She had a lot of responsibility. 
But she ran. She ran away from her husband. She ran away from her children. She ran away from her home. She fled to another state. She fled to another life. Her husband eventually found her. Her husband eventually called her. Her husband got the children on the phone. They said, honey, we love you, children. We love you, mom. Begged her to come home. She hung up the phone. Shortly after, at great expense to himself, emotionally, physically, financially, he found her. He went to her. He begged her to come home. Told her he loved her. And she fell to pieces in his arms. Later he said, honey, why? You know, why when the children begged you to come home, when I begged you to come home, we told you we loved you, please come home. When we talked on the phone, why didn't you come? And she said, before it was only words. But then you came. Then you came. For many of you, it's only words. But he comes in those words. He comes for you in those words. And that's why Paul fights like heck to preserve those words. The grace of Jesus comes to you in a resurrected... The grace of Jesus comes to you with a righteous life for you. The grace of Jesus comes to you with a sin-bearing life for you. The grace of Jesus comes to you with I am always with you resurrection. Your spiritual success and your spiritual hunger to matter, your sense of performance and your drive for purity standards and all that goes into that will not, will not accept you, will not forgive you, will not make you righteous, will not love you, but Jesus will. He came for you. Your obsession with getting better and feeling superior and abusing others will not make you righteous, will not forgive you, will not accept you, will not take you in, will not love you. But Jesus will. He came for you. So real Christianity, brothers and sisters, from the very bio of one of the greatest men who ever lived, real Christianity is grace slash Jesus coming to you from beginning to end. 